Well, welcome everybody. Good to see all of you today. Uh, food will be coming in about an hour and a half. So just hold on to your seats. I just felt food in the air. I just had to, I had to address it before I preach. <laughs> For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here. It's good to see all of you. Uh, we've been going through a series in the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, uh, one of the longer and more complicated letters, and that's why I love it, because it has so much depth. It, the book of Hebrews is actually the most complexly written uh, book in the New Testament from the perspective of the Greek that is used. It is eloquent. It is beautiful. Somebody that uh, incredibly educated in rhetoric uh, from that time wrote this book, and there's there's just so many dynamics happening in it. Uh, that's why I've been encouraging everybody to read before you come so that you can get a sense of what's happening and pair it with some scriptures uh, just to see how richly in Hebrews uh, the writer is taking from all the different places in scripture and bringing them together for, for a beautiful word. Um, and so today we're in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be going to 5 verse 11 to chapter 6 verse 12. Title of today's sermon is Cancelled, a Great Peril. Cancelled, a Great Peril. Um, so last week we talked about Jesus as high priest, if you weren't here. Uh, and as high priest, what does he do? He brings eternal salvation for all those who obey him. So this week, uh, what we're doing is we're picking up where the preacher in verse 11. So last week we ended in verse 10. But in verse 11, you can read with me here, it's kind of this transition sentence that is really important. Uh, the preacher says this, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So what's happening is, he has a lot to say about Jesus as high priest, Jesus as the eternal salvation, and how we obey him. But before he gets into that, he just needs to give the church another warning. Remember I told you in Hebrews there are five warnings. We're about to get into another warning today. So before he goes into Jesus as high priest and what that means for our salvation, um, he essentially has a transition in, from verse 11 in chapter 5 all the way through the end of chapter 6. So it's a two-part this week and next week. We'll finish it off. Um but he does have a lot to say because chapters 7 through 10 in Hebrews is dedicated to Jesus as high priest and eternal salvation. So we're going to get into that after we have this interlude here in chapters 5 and 6. So before he gets there, he has to set something straight. The church, he is saying, has become dull of hearing. They are not listening properly, which is leading them to not obeying properly. And so he gives them this warning before he goes into explaining Jesus as high priest, and that's where we're left to today. So this passage that we're going to be going through is broken up into four sections, and what the preacher does is he alternates between essentially being pessimistic about the congregation and being optimistic about the congregation. So, you know, I, I think about this of, you know, when, uh, how I, what you should do when you discipline your kids. You discipline your kid, why? Because they're doing something wrong, but you do it because you know that they can do better. 
And after you discipline them, what, do you, what you should do after them, you should comfort them, love them, and show them the right way. And so this is how I think of this passage. It is discipline with love, discipline with love. And that's how we're going to be looking through these four sections because they're alternating between those two things. And so um, we're going to start off with this preacher kind of giving a mozziata today, and we're going to enjoy it. For those of you that don't know, that's my Italian heritage that that's when I knew I was going to get a spanking, when I was told you're going to get a mozziata. No, that was my grandparents that said that, not my parents. <laughs> they were too far removed from any culture <laughs> from their mainlands. All right, so we're going to read in verse 12 to 14. Starting in verse 12, again, if you don't have your Hebrews journal with me, you can read along on the screen. It says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, remember this preacher's te- teaching the congrega- uh, preaching to the congregation, By this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So again, the members of this house church were struggling with the prospect of becoming martyrs. They were struggling with the prospect of becoming martyrs. And as they were struggling with this idea of what it meant to give up their life for their confession of faith in Jesus, they began to regress in their walk with God, and they started to make bad decisions. They started to go from maturity to childhood and how they walked out their faith. The preacher says, you should have been... Teachers of the faith, you, are, you should be mature. You've been Christian so long. You've been following this confession for so long that you should be teachers. But instead, now, you need someone to teach you the basics. And he uses this analogy, right, of them becoming babies and needing milk. At this point, they should be chefs. They should be in the kitchen. They should know how to prepare the meal, and they should be serving others. But instead... They have become like babies who need milk, can't even eat food. You know, if you don't, th- this is serious newborn status. Because if they can't even eat food, that means they haven't even crossed the six-month point yet of their infancy. So their fear of being martyred has taken them back into making bad decisions of regressing in their Christian faith to the point of now infancy again, when they should be mature, solid Christians. The preacher uses this this phrase that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's the key phrase here that we know that the preacher is talking about them being worried about being martyred. This uh, phrase, the word of righteousness, was a signal in the early church that meant enduring to the end. And to the end literally meant to the end, to the point of giving up your life of dying for the cause of Christ, which was not an uncommon scenario in the early church. Polycarp, one of the early second century church fathers, also a martyr, said this, I therefore exhort you to carry out the word of righteousness and to practice endurance to the limit, an endurance of which you have an object lesson, not only in those blessed persons, Ignatius, Zan. Zazmias and Rufus, some of these names, 
but also in members of your own community, as well as in Paul himself and the other apostles. See, Polycarp was mentioning all the other martyrs, and he's saying there, the letter that he is writing to the Ephesian church, he's saying that you have people in your community who have been martyred. The, here's are other people in the faith who have been martyred, even Paul, even the other apostles. Endure to the end. This word of righteousness meant that you would endure to the end to martyrdom. The preacher understands that the faith of the congregation was being challenged in a very real way. They were being faced with death for their faith. In the West, in our culture today, the peril of being martyred is not a real threat because of the country that we live in. The laws, the police, the army, all these things stop that for the most part from that happening. But that isn't to say that the culture doesn't have its own ways to silence the people that they don't like. Today, what we have, we may not be getting martyred, but we have what's called cancel culture, which is to say this. If you say something that we, the mob, don't like, you are canceled. We will boycott anything you create. You will no longer be our friend. You are no longer welcome in our spaces, in our workplaces, right? If, if you say something that goes against what the culture is agreed upon and says this is PC, this is right, this is the right way of doing, then you will be canceled. We shut your mouth, we push you out, we blackmail you from ever being a part of our space. This is a very real threat to the church today, to Christians today. In very similar ways, the church was being threatened by martyrdom. Just a second. <laughs> When you are confronted with the challenge of your faith today, you can either grow and meet the challenge, or you can shrink back and hold your faith to yourself. The same way the church, when they were challenged with standing up in front of people and being martyred, they had the choice. They can rise up to the occasion and say, no, this is what I believe. I believe in Jesus, King of kings and Lord, and Lord of lords who have died on the cross, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven as the true Lord of the earth. Or they could be shut out, killed, and martyred for their belief. What the preacher is saying is when you shrink back, when you shut your mouth, what happens is your faith dies a slow death. And when that happens, you push further and further away from Christ. As you deny him, your heart becomes cold and callous towards him. The church in Hebrews was shrinking back. And it meant regression so bad that they began, it began to affect everything, that they couldn't even distinguish between good and evil anymore. The things that they had been disciplined to do, mature and grow and do, they could not even do anymore to discern between good and evil. And so then the preacher exhorts them, and he says this in chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 3. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he says, let's go forward onto the meat. He knows that the church knows all this stuff already. They're not babies. They may be acting like babies, but they're not babies. They know all this. It shouldn't be a thing for them to give up their life for Christ. People unskilled in the word of righteousness, these are babies, these are newborns that would stand in the face of death and be afraid. But a mature Christian, someone who knows Jesus and knows about the, has the knowledge of who he is. Right? He says they know all the basics. They know repentance from dead works of the law, having faith in God about baptism or washings, about praying for one another or laying on of hands, of our new life with Christ, about eternal judgment. They know about all of these doctrines already. They have this solid foundation. So the preacher is now challenging them, walk in obedience to the level of the knowledge that you have. The, ne- the level of your knowledge and experience of Jesus requires a depth and maturity of their Christianity that they are not currently walking in. Because he says to, to deny Christ in front of others, to be posed with the threat of other people not liking you, to be posed with the threat of your life being ended and being scared and being fearful of that, That's for the babies who don't really know Christ, who haven't experienced him in the depth and the richness that you have. But when you know of Christ, when you have experienced his goodness, then to stand in the face of fear and look at it and know that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That means to look at it and to not be afraid. One of the things I do with my kids before we go to sleep is we read scripture together. One of the scriptures we've been reading is Psalm 23. And they they love it um, because there's that part where, yea, they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, anything that has death or fighting or anything, like two boys, they love it. They have my jeans in them. They go and we, we say with authority, I will fear no evil. But they've learned to replace that word with things that they have been afraid of in their life. And so they will shout out, Judah recently was saying, I will fear no Halloween. <laughs> because whenever we walk by a house with skeletons or witches, you go, I'm scared, Daddy. And I tell him, let's repeat Psalm 23 together. Right? The, the preacher is saying, you know God is greater. You know that you have no, nothing to fear. You know already what Jesus said, do not fear people who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy the soul. You know these things. It is only the babies that struggle with this. You shouldn't be struggling with this. So let's move on to the mature things. Let's go forward. Not only do you know the basics, but he he says in a second, but you have experienced all the good things God offers. So how is it possible that after experiencing God in all of his glory, that giving up your life physically would be such a thing for you? In verse 4 in chapter 6, the warning comes. He says, 
For it is impossible, impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed and its end to be burned. See, the peril here that is being described is not being martyred or canceled. It is the impossibility of being restored to repentance. That's the peril in the scripture. See, humanly speaking, what do we fear the most? We fear the loss of our life. Since the beginning of time, we have been trying to preserve our life, trying to live longer. And if you think your greatest fear is not losing your life, then you've never had a near-death experience. Because if you've ever had a near-death experience, if you ever looked in the face of things that very rightly could take your life, things like cancer or disease or, or trauma, things that you look at that and say, I'm going to die, then you realize there is one great fear that all humans have. And that is the fear of death. And what do we do? We try to preserve our life at all costs. That is the human basic instinct. But to the one who knows, who loves, and has experienced Jesus, the true peril, though, is not spending eternity with him. That peril, that is the greatest fear that we could ever face. It is not dying. You can do what you want to my body. You can do what you want to me. You can take my body, you can destroy my name, you can trample on my life, but do not take from me Jesus. Because whatever you do in this life, it doesn't matter because I know what awaits for me in the next. He says to all those who have the knowledge of God, he says this, you have tasted the heavenly gift. You have shared in the Holy Spirit. You have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the goodness of the age to come. Some of heaven, you've tasted what that's like to be in the glory of God, in the presence of God, to experience his Holy Spirit, to come upon you, to be in the presence of the Almighty, in the Holy of Holies, to boldly go before the throne of grace. And be in the presence of the God who with just words spoke into existence, life earth and heaven and after all of that you contemplate denying Christ when it matters how in verse 6 it says he says that some have fallen away meaning they have denied their faith in front of others to save their life they have denied their faith in front of others to save their life See, what's happening at this time in Christendom is, is 64 A.D. Most scholars believe that Hebrews was written in the mid to early 60s, latest in A.D. 70. Rome burned down when the emperor Nero was in charge. And a lot of people began to blame Nero for Rome burning. 
And so when everybody started to blame Nero, Nero was going crazy because he loved the adoration of the people. And he knew, what is the best way to get the focus off of me onto somebody else? I'm going to blame somebody that everybody is afraid of, the other. And the great other of the Roman Empire at this point were the Christians. Those weird people who are cannibals because they drink blood and eat bodies. Right? The world didn't understand communion. And so it was this cannibalistic sect or cult within the Jewish community. That's how Christians were looked at at this time. So Nero looks around and he says, who am I going to blame after Rome burns? And he looks at the Christians and he says, they are to blame. And so from 64 AD, what happens in the Roman Empire is a systematic, brutal murder of Christians for hundreds of years. That begins with Nero. And it goes all the way on to 312 A.D. until finally Constantine, the emperor of Rome, is converted to Christianity. But for that entire time, Christians were brutally murdered and systematically found out for their faith. And their lives were destroyed, properties stolen, completely ruined. But before the Christian was murdered, they were usually given this chance. They were usually given a chance to renounce Christ and hail Caesar. They had to hail Caesar as king, the true king. And they would say, all you have to do is just deny Christ. Just say, hail Caesar, and we will let you go. You won't have to die. You won't have to be tortured. You will be fine. Nero was known for having these crazy orgies and drunken parties. And he would take Christians that were crucified and still alive, and he would light them on fire as torches for his parties at night, burning them alive. And knowing this, Christians would come face to face with their soon executioner, and he would just say, just, just deny Christ. Just say that what you've done is, what you, you don't believe in it anymore. Hail Caesar, I, I am the true king. But Christians continued to say, no, we cannot deny Christ because we have tasted the goodness of what is to come. We have encountered his Holy Spirit. We know and have experienced Jesus. We have the knowledge of the great one. Polycarp, the one I quoted before, just like many before him and many after him, was martyred. In his 90s, he was found out. He was taken and he was brought into somewhere like a Colosseum, but it wasn't the Colosseum. And he was told, renounce your faith, and he said no. And so what they did was they put him on a stake, and they tried to burn him alive. But when they found that the flames could not kill him, they came and stabbed him to death to make sure that he would die in front of everybody. But before they did that, they asked him, will you renounce Christ and hail Caesar? And he refused because the word of righteousness, that endurance to the end, he could not let go of. In our world today, they may not be able to kill us, but they will bleed us every way possible. Emotionally, psychologically, politically. They will find every way to make your life torture and hell until you just say those words. I know the Bible says this, but, you know, that was a long time ago. I believe this. 
yeah, I know that it would be awkward to be a Christian in this circle, and so I'll leave it out when I talk about myself. Or when somebody asks me, do I believe what I believe? I, I don't want to make my work relationship awkward. This is my boss, and so my job is important. So I will, I'll leave that out. God won't mind. See, what, what, the, what the world does, I was thinking about this documentary, I don't know if you've seen it, called Expelled. It was by Ben Stein, the clear eyes guy, you know, that guy. And he, he talked about what was happening in the scientific community, that if you essentially came out as someone who believed in intelligent design, the entire community would shun you. All of your research, no matter how scientific, no matter how proper it was, you would get essentially excommunicated from all the, the big journals, from all the community, from all the research. They would take them out. They would lose their funding. They would lose their tenures in colleges. They would lose their jobs. They would lose all these things. Why? Because they believed in intelligent design. And it wasn't like, oh, I believe in intelligent design, so your science is dumb, and, and I'm just going to go off that. No, these were scientists, PhDs, who were just like any other scientist had a theory, and we're backing it up through the scientific method. But they were found that, no, you believe this, guess what? That goes against the culture, that goes against the norm, so you are getting canceled. You are going to get bled out. We're going to take away your funding. We're going to take away your job. We're going to take away your journals. We're going to take away your research. We're going to remove your career from existence. And this was happening systematically in the scientific community. And the documentary Expels goes through how this was happening. See, the true danger that comes with our readiness to give into the ways of culture is to deny Christ in front of others. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, verse 33, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny the Son of God, what other repentance can you receive eternal salvation by? That is the question that the preacher of Hebrews is asking. The answer to that is none. There is no other repentance by which you can receive eternal salvation. And so when you fall away, when the, when the moment shines on you in that time where you are asked, will you believe or will you not? Will you deny him or you, will you speak up? Will you boldly proclaim? Will you confidently say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe there was a man 2,000 years ago who died for my sins, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit, who now whose church I'm a part of. And I worship with other people every Sunday. I'm, I'm part of a church that believes this, practices it, and obeys all the implications of what this means. Will you deny or will you boldly, confidently stand up for your faith? And when the lights are on you, when the question is asked, when everybody turns around and looks at you and says, what about you? When you're about to say something that, man, it may go against what they believe. It may go against how they perceive life, how they perceive politics. And you say, well, I'm a Christian, and so I believe this. 
will you deny him? To end this warning, he encourages the church again. In verse 9, he says this to 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. Saying, yeah, I know it's real hard, but in your case, we remain sure that you are going to last to the end. He says, I've seen you endure in the past. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to read about what some of the things this church had to endure in the past. Nero wasn't yet killing Christians all around the empire, but they were getting their properties confiscating. They were getting thrown out of their families and out of their homes. They were being excommunicated. There were things that this church had already been through. They had a history of enduring And so the preacher's saying, I know, I've seen you in the past do this. I am sure you will endure now. Church, we can do it. God has been more than enough for thousands of years. We have been murdered. We have been systematically wiped out. We have been blacklisted. We have been robbed. We have been beaten. And what has happened over the last 2,000 years, the church has prevailed through the blood of Jesus Christ. So when you look at today's culture, and I see so many people scared. What are we going to do? If the Supreme Court rules against us, what are we going to do? If this person becomes president, what are we going to do? If they start legislating laws against us, what are we going to do? Sometimes I pray, God, let the church in the West stop relying on its government for protection. Let it be persecuted so that we can read these verses and we can get out of our comfort zone and stop being scared about losing our comfort and losing our friends and losing our emotional stability and all these things that we have raised around us. God, let us be persecuted like the church has been persecuted for thousands of years. Because then we can say what the apostles said. That yes, I experience the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his suffering. Guess what? I don't care what the Supreme Court legislates. I don't care what president comes in. I don't care what Congress and the Senate says about my Christianity. Why? Because they can legislate all they want to the blue in the face. They can take away My ability to get tax exemption, is that going to stop me from giving? No. Why? Because I don't give for a tax exemption. I give out of obedience to God to propel his kingdom forward. 
I don't care if they say that I'm going to have to not say this or not say that. Guess what? I have a Bible that tells me exactly what I'm supposed to say and exactly how I'm supposed to say it. And we get so worried and we get so scared because we're going to lose our comforts. Church, it's okay. Every empire has come and gone. The American empire will come and go. But the church will remain. If we identify ourselves as an American Christian, then we're losing our identity. Because we are first Christians and then we are Americans, if you are American here. Whatever that is that you are. First, we are washed by the blood. Inheriting the kingdom of God with Jesus, adopted into his family. Citizens of the kingdom of light because we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. Empires have legislated, presidents have said things, senates have made decrees. But that should never stop the church. Do not let today's wind of culture worry you about whether you should boldly profess your faith. Whether the government is happy about it or not, whether we do it, whether our friends will be happy about it or not, if we're Christians or not, if we profess Jesus, whether media will mock us or not, Follow Jesus. So how in a hostile world do we keep our faith? The preacher says two things. He says, don't be slow to obedience. He starts off this, don't be slow to hear. You've been hard of hearing. That word is really sluggish, and then it ends with the church being sluggish again, coming full circle. Don't be sluggish. Don't be slow to obedience. And then the second thing, imitate those who have succeeded through the trials before you. Gain strength from the church that has gone before us, that has survived worse times than ours, that has lived through and not only survived but thrived. Sometimes I wonder if the church in America, the reason why it's in decline is is not because of the political and cultural atmosphere, but because of the comfort atmosphere that we live in. That if you look at even the church in China right now that has seen in the last 30 years some of the biggest explosions and revival that we've ever seen. Why? Because when you convert, you go underground. You get marked. This is, I believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the material things that Jesus can give me. I believe in the one ultimate blessing that I get from him, and that's adoption, salvation, eternal life. Both of these things the preacher will explore more and more as we dive deeper into Hebrews. But today, the point that he calls us to remember is the great warning 
the great peril before us. To deny Jesus in our faith in him in front of others is to be denied by him when it most counts. When the time comes, whether at work, before family, to your friends, that you are questioned about your beliefs, do not fall away. Be bold. Why? Because Jesus has transformed and changed your life. Look at Scripture. Don't look at your party lines and say, this is what I'm supposed to believe. Look at Scripture and say, "Is what God are you calling me to believe? Don't look at your culture and look at your country and wonder, how am I supposed to believe? Look to Jesus. I know that in him I am sustained. In him he is, he glorifies himself through me. In him, just like you, Jesus, may I be poured out. As a drink offering. To others. I want to encourage us. When the time comes, it may be in a conversation tomorrow at work. Most definitely will be at the Thanksgiving Day table because we know that's where all the family conflict happens. It may be in a conversation with some of your friends at a Friendsgiving over the next week or two. It may be in your hesitation to take that Insta story because you don't want people to know that you go to church. It may be in that way that you open up your Bible on the train or not or at work or not or that book because you don't want to be seen as weird as that Jesus follower, that person that has faith in Christ. But I will tell you, the, the light will be shined. You will be asked. And a question will be posed, do you believe in Christ? And you will have a moment in your head to ask, do I want to suffer the consequences of the yes, or do I want to live in the comfort of the no? Suffer the consequences of the yes. Because in that, you get to be like Jesus in ways that you probably never imagined you would be. Can we stand and we pray?